0: Hello, PS202 class, welcome to our podcast lecture series in PS202, Introduction to Political Theory. In this episode, we will take up The Spirit of the Laws by Charles Louis de Secondat Baron de Labre et de Montesquieu. Montesquieu was one of the great political philosophers of the Enlightenment period. Insatiably curious and mordantly funny, he constructed a naturalistic account of of the various forms of government and of the causes that made them what they were and that advanced or constrained their development he used this account to explain how governments might be preserved from corruption he saw despotism in particular as a standing danger for any government not already despotic and argued that it could best be prevented by a system in which Different bodies exercised legislative, executive, and judicial power, and in which all those bodies were bound by the rule of law. This theory of the separation of powers had an enormous impact on liberal political theory and on the framers of the Constitution of the United States of America. Charles Louis II, Baron de la Bray de Montesquieu, was born on January 19, 1689, at la Bray, near Bordeaux, to a noble and prosperous family. He was educated at the Oratorian College de Juilly, received a law degree from the University of Bordeaux in 1708, and went to Paris to continue his legal studies. On the death of his father in 1713, he returned to la Bray to manage the estates he inherited. And in 1715, he married John de Lartigue, a practicing protestant, with whom he had a son and two daughters. In 1716, he inherited from his uncle the title Baron de la Bray et de Montesquieu, and the office of President Amortier in the Parliament of Bordeaux, which was at the time chiefly a judicial and administrative body. For the next eleven years, he presided over the Tournail, the Parliament's criminal division, in which capacity he heard legal proceedings, supervised prisons, and administered various punishments, including torture. During this time, he was also active in the Academy of Bordeaux, where he kept abreast of scientific developments, and gave papers on topics ranging from the causes of echoes to the motives that should lead us to pursue the sciences. In 1721, Montesquieu published the Person Letters, which was an instant success and made Montesquieu a literary celebrity. He published the Persian letters anonymously, but his authorship was an open secret. He began to spend more time in Paris, where he frequented salons and acted on behalf of the Parliament and the Academy of Bordeaux. During this period, he wrote several minor works, Dialogue de Sille et de Créte, Reflexions sur la Monarchie Universelle, and Le Temple de Grade." In 1725, he sold his life interest in his office and resigned from the Parliament. In 1728, he was elected to the Academy François, despite some religious opposition, and shortly thereafter left France to travel abroad. After visiting Italy, Germany, Austria, and other countries, he went to England, where he lived for two years. He was greatly impressed with the English political system and drew on his observations of it in his later work. On his return to France in 1731, troubled by failing eyesight, Montesquieu returned to Bray and began work on his masterpiece, The Spirit of the Loss. During this time, he also wrote Considerations on the Causes of the Greatness of the Romans and of their decline, which he published anonymously in 1734. In his book, he retried to work out the application of his views to the particular case of Rome, and in so doing, to discourage the use of Rome as a model for contemporary governments, parts of considerations were incorporated into the Spirit of the Laws, which he published in 1748. Like the Persian letters, the Spirit of the Laws was both controversial and immensely successful. Two years later, he published A Defense of the Spirit of the Laws to answer his various critiques. Despite this effort, the Roman Catholic Church placed the Spirit of the laws on the Index of Forbidden Books in 1751. In 1755, Montesquieu died of a fever in Paris, leaving behind an unfinished essay on taste for the Encyclopedia of Diderot and the Lambert. The Spirit of the laws. Montesquieu's aim in The Spirit of the laws is to explain human loss and social institutions. This might seem like an impossible project, unlike physical laws, which are, according to Montesquieu, instituted and sustained by God. Positive laws and social institutions are created by fallible human beings who are subject to ignorance and error, hurried away by a thousand impetuous passions. One might therefore expect are laws and institutions to be no more comprehensible than any other catalogue of human follies, an expectation which the extraordinary diversity of laws adopted by different societies would seem to confirm. Nonetheless, Montesquieu believes that this apparent chaos is much more comprehensible than one might think. On his view, the key to understanding different laws and social systems is to recognize that they should be adapted to a variety of different factors and cannot be properly understood unless one considers them in this light. Specifically, laws should be adapted to the people for whom they are framed, to the nature and principle of each government, to the climate of each country, to the quality of its soil, to its situation and extent to the principal occupation of the natives, whether husbandmen, huntsmen, or shepherds. They should have relation to the degree of liberty which the Constitution will bear, to the religion of the inhabitants, to their inclinations, reaches, numbers, commerce, manners, and customs. In fine, they have relations to each other, as also to their origin, to the intent of the legislator, and to the order of things on which they are established, in all of which, different lights, they ought to be considered. When we consider legal and social systems in relation to these various factors, Montesquieu believes we will find that many laws and institutions that had seemed puzzling or even perverse are in fact quite comprehensible. Understanding why we have the laws we do is important in itself. However, it also serves practical purposes most importantly it will discourage misguided attempts at reform montesquieu is not a utopian either by temperament or conviction he believes that to live under a stable non despotic government that leaves its law-abiding citizens more or less free to live their lives is a great good and that no such government should be lightly tempered or tampered with if we understand our system of government and the ways in which it is adopted to the conditions of our country and its people, we will see that many of its apparently irrational features actually make sense, and that to reform these features would actually weaken it. Thus, for instance, one might think that a monarchical government would be strengthened by weakening the nobility, thereby giving more power to the monarch. On Montesquieu's view, this is false. To weaken those groups or institutions, which check a monarch's power is to risk transforming monarchy into despotism, a form of government that is both abhorrent and unstable. Understanding our laws will also help us to see which aspects of them are genuinely in need of reform, and how these reforms might be accomplished. For instance, Montesquieu believes that the laws of many countries can be made be more liberal and more humane, and that they can often be applied less arbitrarily, with less scope, for the unpredictable and oppressive use of state power. Likewise, religious persecution and slavery can be abolished, and commerce can be encouraged. These reforms would generally strengthen monarchical governments since they enhance the freedom and dignity of citizens. If lawmakers understand the relations between laws on the one hand and conditions of their countries and the principles of their governments on the other, they will be in a better position to carry out such reforms without undermining the governments they seek to improve. On the forms of government, Montesquieu holds that there are three types of governments. Republican governments, which can take either democratic or aristocratic forms, monarchies, and despotisms. Unlike, for instance, Aristotle, Montesquieu does not distinguish forms of government on the basis of the virtue of the sovereign. The distinction between monarchy and despotism, for instance, depends not on the virtue of the monarch, but on whether or not he governs by fixed and established laws. Each form of government has a principle, a set of human passions which set it in motion, and each can be corrupted if its principle is undermined or destroyed in a democracy the people are sovereign they may govern through ministers or be advised by a senate but they must have the power of choosing their ministers and senators for themselves the principle of democracy is political virtue by which montesquieu means the love of the laws and of our country including its democratic constitution the form of the mo- of a democratic government makes the laws governing suffrage and voting fundamental. The need to protect its principle, however, imposes far more extensive requirements. On Montesquieu's view, the virtue required by a functioning democracy is not natural. It requires a constant preference of public to private interests. It limits ambition to the sole desire to the sole happiness of doing greater services to our country than the rest of our fellow citizens. And it is a self-renunciation which is ever arduous and painful. Montesquieu compares it to monks' love for their order. The rule debars them from all those things by which the ordinary passions are fed. There remains, therefore, only this passion for the very rule that torments them. The more it curbs their inclinations, the more force it gives to the only passion left them. To produce this unnatural self-renunciation, the whole power of education is required. A democracy must educate its citizens to identify their interests with the interests of their country and should have censors to preserve its motives. It should seek to establish frugality by law so as to prevent its citizens from being tempted to advance their own private interests at the expense of the public good for the same reason the laws by which property is transferred should aim to preserve an equal distribution of property among citizens its territory should be small so that it is easy for citizens to identify with it and more difficult for extensive private interests to emerge democracies can be corrupted in two ways by what Montesquieu calls the spirit of inequality and the spirit of extreme equality. The spirit of inequality arises when citizens no longer identify their interests with the interests of their country and therefore seek both to advance their own private interests at the expense of their fellow citizens and to acquire political power over them. The spirit of extreme equality arises when the people are no longer content to be equal as citizens but want to be equal in every respect. In a functioning democracy, the people choose magistrates to exercise executive power, and they respect and obey the magistrates they have chosen. If those magistrates forfeit their respect, they replace them. When the spirit of extreme equality takes root, however, the citizens neither respect nor obey any magistrate. They want to manage everything themselves, to debate for the Senate, to execute for the magistrate, and to decide for the judges. Eventually, the government will cease to function, the last remnants of virtue will disappear, and democracy will be replaced by despotism. In an aristocracy, one part of the people governs the rest. The principle of an aristocratic government is moderation the virtue which leads to those who govern in an aristocracy to restrain themselves both from oppressing the people and from trying to acquire excessive power over one another. In an aristocracy, the laws should be designed to instill and protect this spirit of moderation. To do so, they must do three things. First, the laws must prevent the nobility from abusing the people. The power of the nobility makes such abuses standing temptation in an aristocracy. To avoid it, the laws should deny the nobility some powers, like the power to tax, which would make this temptation all but irresistible, and should try to foster responsible and moderate administration. Second, the laws should disguise as much as possible the difference between the nobility and the people so that the people feel their lack of power as little as possible. Thus, the nobility should have modest and simple manners since if they do not attempt to distinguish themselves from the people, the people are apt to forget their subjection and weakness. Finally, the laws should try to ensure equality among the nobles themselves and among noble families. When they fail to do so, the nobility will lose its spirit of moderation and the government will be corrupted. In a monarchy, one person governs by fixed and established laws. According to Montesquieu, these laws necessarily suppose the intermediate channels through which the monarch's power flows. For if there be only the momentary and capricious will of a single person to govern the state, nothing can be fixed, and of course, there is no fundamental law. These intermediate channels are such subordinate institutions as the nobility and an independent judiciary, and the loss of a monarchy should therefore be designed to preserve their power. The principle of monarchical government is honor. Unlike the virtue required by republican governments, the desire to win honor and distinction comes naturally to us. For this reason, education has a less difficult task in a monarchy than in a republic. It needs only heighten our ambitions and our sense of our own worth. Provide us with an ideal of honor worth aspiring to, and cultivate in us the politeness needed to live with others whose sense of their worth matches our own. The chief task of the laws in a monarchy is to protect the subordinate institutions that distinguish monarchy from despotism. To this end, they should make it easy to preserve large estates undivided, protect the rights and privileges of the nobility, and promote the rule of law. They should also encourage the proliferation of distinctions and of rewards for honorable conduct, including luxuries. A monarchy is corrupted when the monarch either destroys the subordinate institutions that constrain his will or decides to rule arbitrarily without regard to the basic laws of his country or the basis the honors at which his citizens might aim, so that men are capable of being loaded at the very same time with infamy and with dignities. The first two forms of corruption destroy the checks on the sovereign's will that separate monarchy from despotism. The third subverts the connection between honorable conduct and its proper rewards. In a functioning monarchy, personal ambition and a sense of honor work together. This is monarchy's great strength and the source of its extraordinary stability. Whether its citizens act from genuine virtue, a sense of their own worth, a desire to serve their king, or personal ambition, they will be led to act in ways that serve their country. A monarch who rules arbitrarily, or who rewards servility and ignoble conduct instead of genuine honor, severs this connection and corrupts his government. In this politic states, a single person directs everything by his own will and caprice, without laws to check him, and with no need to attend to anyone who does not agree with him. A despot can do whatever he likes, however ill-advised or reprehensible. His subjects are no better than slaves, and he can dispose of them as he sees fit. The principle of despotism is fear. This fear is easily maintained since the situation of a despot's subjects is genuinely terrifying. Education is unnecessary in a despotism, if it exceeds at all. It should be designed to debase the mind and break the spirit. Such ideas as honor and virtue should not occur to disposed subjects since persons capable of setting a value in themselves would be likely to create disturbances. Fear must therefore depress their spirits and extinguish even the least sense of ambition. Their portion here, like that of beasts, is instinct, compliance, and punishment, and any higher aspirations should be brutally discouraged. Montesquieu writes that the principle of despotic government is subject to continual corruption because it is even in its nature corrupt. This is true in several senses. First, despotic governments undermine themselves. Because property is not secure in a despotic state, commerce will not flourish and the state will become poor. The people must be kept in a state of fear by the threat of punishment. However, over time, the punishments needed to keep them in line will tend to become more and more severe until further threats lose their force. Most importantly, however, the disposed character is likely to prevent him from ruling effectively. Since a disposed every whim is granted, he has no occasion to deliberate, to doubt, to reason, and he has only to will. For this reason, he is never forced to develop anything like intelligence, character, or resolution. Instead, he is naturally lazy, voluptuous, and ignorant, and has no interest in actually governing his people. He will therefore choose a visor to govern for him, and retire to his seraglio to pursue pleasure. In his absence, however, intrigues against him will multiply, especially since his rule is necessarily odious to his subjects, and since they have so little to lose if their plots against him fail. He cannot rely on his army to protect him, since the more power they have, the greater the likelihood that his generals will themselves try to seize power. For this reason, the ruler in a despotic state has no more security than his people. Second, monarchical and republican governments involve specific governmental structures and require that their citizens have specific sorts of motivation when these structures crumble or these motivations fail monarchical and republican governments are corrupted and the result of their corruption is that they fall into despotism but when a particular despotic government fails it is not generally replaced by a monarchy or a republic the creation of a stable monarchy or republic is extremely difficult, a masterpiece of legislation, rarely produced by hazard and seldom attained by prudence. It is particularly difficult when those who would have both to fame the loss of such a government and to live by a despotic government, and by contrast it is relatively straightforward. A despotism requires no powers to be carefully balanced against one another, no institutions to be created and maintained in existence. No complicated motivations to be fostered, and no restraints on power to be kept in place. One need only terrifies one's fellow citizens enough to allow one to impose one's will on them. And this Montesquieu claims is what every capacity may reach. For these reasons, despotism necessarily stands in a different relation to corruption than other forms of government. While they are liable to corruption, despotism is its embodiment. On Liberty Montesquieu is among the greatest philosophers of liberalism but his is what Sklar has called a liberalism of fear According to Montesquieu, political liberty is a tranquility of mind arising from the opinion each person has of his safety Liberty is not the freedom to do whatever we want if we have the freedom to harm others, for instance Others will also have the freedom to harm us, and we will have no confidence in our own safety. Liberty involves living under laws that protect us from harm while leaving us free to do as much as possible, and that enable us to feel the greatest possible confidence that if we obey those laws, the power of the state will not be directed against us. If it is to provide its citizens with the greatest possible liberty, a government must have certain features. First, since constant experience shows us that every man invested with power is apt to abuse it, it is necessary from the very nature of things that power should be a check to power. This is achieved through the separation of the executive, legislative, and judicial powers of government. If different persons or bodies exercise these powers, that each can check the others if they try to abuse their powers. But if one person or body holds several or all of these powers, then nothing prevents that person or body from acting tyrannically, and the people will have no confidence in their own security. Certain arrangements make it easier for the three powers to check one another. Montesquieu argues, that the legislative power alone should have the power to tax, since it can then deprive the executive of funding if the latter attempts to impose its will arbitrarily. Likewise, the executive power should have the right to veto acts of the legislature, and the legislature should be composed of two houses, each of which can prevent acts of the other from becoming law. The judiciary should be independent of both the legislature and the executive, and should restrict itself to applying the laws to particular cases in a fixed and consistent manner, so that the judicial power so terrible to mankind becomes, as it were, invisible, and people fear the office but not the magistrate. Liberty also requires that the law's concern only threats to public order and security, since such laws will protect us from harm while leaving us free to do as many other things as possible. Thus, for instance, the law should not concern offenses against God since He does not require their protection. They should not prohibit what they do not need to prohibit. All punishment which is not derived from necessity is tyrannical. The law is not a mere act of power. Things in their own, nature indifferent, are not within its province. The law should be constructed to make it as easy as possible. For citizens to protect themselves from punishment by not committing crimes. They should not be vague since if they were, we might never be sure whether or not some particular action was a crime. Nor should they prohibit things we might do inadvertently, like bumping into a statue of the emperor, or involuntarily, like doubting the wisdom of one of his decrees if such actions were crimes. No amount of effort to abide by the laws of our country would justify confidence that we would succeed, and therefore we could never feel safe from criminal prosecution. Finally, the laws should make it as easy as possible for an innocent person to prove his or her innocence. They should concern outward conduct, not for instance our thoughts and dreams, since while we can try to prove that we did not perform some action, we cannot prove that we never had some thought. The law should not criminalize conduct that is inherently hard to prove like witchcraft and lawmakers should be cautious when dealing with crimes like sodomy, which are typically not carried out in the presence of several witnesses, lest they open a very wide door to calumny. Montesquieu's emphasis on the connection between liberty and the details of the criminal law were unusual among his contemporaries, and inspired such later legal reformers as Cesare Beccaria. On Climate and Geography Montesquieu believes that climate and geography affect the temperaments and customs of a country's inhabitants. He is not a determinist and does not believe that these influences are irresistible. Nonetheless, he believes that the law should take these effects into account, accommodating them when necessary, and counteracting their worst effects. According to Montesquieu, a cold climate constricts our body's fibers and causes coarser juices to flow through them. Heat, by contrast, expands our fibers and produces more rarefied juices. These physiological changes affect our characters. Those who live in cold climates are vigorous and bold, phlegmatic, frank and not given to suspicion or cunning. They are relatively insensitive to pleasure and pain. Montesquieu writes that you must flay a Muscovite alive to make him feel. Those who live in warm climates have stronger but less durable sensations. They are more fearful, more amorous, and more susceptible both to the temptations of pleasure and to real or imagined pain. But they are less resolute and less capable of sustained or decisive action. The manners of those who live in temperate climates are inconstant since the climate has not a quality determinate enough to fix them. These differences are not hereditary if one motives from one sort of climate to moving another, and that one's temperament will alter accordingly. A hot climate can make slavery comprehensible. Montesquieu writes that the state of slavery is in its own nature bad. He is particularly contemptuous of religious and racist justifications for slavery. However, on his view, there are two types of country in which slavery, while not acceptable, is... Less bad than it might otherwise be. In despotic countries, the situation of slaves is not that different from the situation of the disposed other subjects. For these reasons, slavery in a despotic country is more tolerable than in other countries. In unusually hot countries, it might be that the excess of heat enervates the body and renders men so slothful and dispirited that nothing but the fear of chastisement can oblige them to perform any laborious duty. Slavery is there more reconcilable to reason. However, Montesquieu writes that when work can be done by free men motivated by the hope of gain rather than by slaves motivated by fear, the former will always work better and that in such climates, slavery is not only wrong but imprudent. He hopes that there is not that climate upon earth where the most laborious services might not, with proper encouragement, be performed by free men. If there is no such climate, then slavery could never be justified on these grounds. The quality of a country's soil also affects the form of its government. Monarchies are more common where the soil is fertile and republics where it is barren. This is so for three reasons. First, those who live in fruitful countries are more apt to be content with their situation and value in a government not the liberty it bestows but its ability to provide them with enough security that they can get on with their farming. They are therefore more willing to accept a monarchy if it can provide such security. Often it can since monarchies can respond to threats more quickly than republics. Second, fertile countries are both more desirable than barren countries and easier to conquer. They are always of a level surface where the inhabitants are unable to dispute against a stronger power. They are then obliged to submit, and when they have once submitted, the spirit of liberty cannot return. The wealth of the country is a pledge of their fidelity. Montesquieu believes that monarchies are much more likely than republics to wage wars of conquest, and therefore that a conquering power is likely to be a monarchy. Third, those who live where the soil is barren have to work hard in order to survive. This stands to make them industrious, sober, inured to hardship, courageous, and fit to war. Those who inhabit fertile country by contrast Favor is effeminacy, and a certain fondness for the preservation of life. For this reason, the inhabitants of barren countries are better able to defend themselves from such attacks as might occur, and to defend their liberty against those who would destroy it. These facts give barren countries advantages that compensate for the infertility of their soil. Since they are less likely to be invaded, they are less likely to be sacked and devastated, and they are more likely to be worked well since countries are not cultivated in proportion to their fertility but to their liberty. This is why the best provinces are most frequently depopulated, but the frightful countries of the north continue always inhabited from their being most uninhabitable. Montesquieu believes that the climate and geography of Asia explain why this flourishes there. Asia, he thinks, has two features that distinguish it from Europe. Asia has virtually no temperate zone. While the mountains of Scandinavia shelter Europe from Arctic winds, Asia has no such buffer. For this reason, its frigid northern zone extends much further south than in Europe, and there is a relatively quick transition from it to the tropical south. For this reason, the warlike, brave, and active people touch immediately upon those who are indolent, effeminate, and timorous. The one must, therefore, conquer, and the other conquered. In Europe, by contrast, the climate changes gradually from cold to hot. Therefore, strong nations are opposed to the strong, and those who join each other have nearly the same courage. Second Asia has larger plains than Europe, its mountain ranges lie further apart and its rivers are not such formidable barriers to invasion. Since Europe is naturally divided into smaller regions, it is more difficult for any one power to conquer them all. This means that Europe will tend to have more smaller states. Asia, by contrast, tends to have much larger empires which predisposes it to despotism on religion religion plays only a minor part in the spirit of the laws god is described in book one as creating nature and its loss having done so he vanishes and plays no further explanatory role in particular montesquieu does not explain the laws of any country by appeal to divine enlightenment providence or guidance in the spirit of the laws Montesquieu considers religions in relation only to the good they produce in civil society, and not to the truth or falsity. He regards different religions as appropriate to different environments and forms of government. Protestantism is most suitable to republics, Catholicism to monarchies, and Islam to despotisms. The Islamic prohibition on eating pork is appropriate to Arabia, where hugs are scars and contribute to disease, while in India, where cattle are badly needed but do not thrive. A prohibition on eating beef is suitable. Thus, when Montezuma, with so much obstinacy, insisted that the religion of the Spaniards was good for their country and his Mexico, he did not assert an absurdity. Religion can help to ameliorate the effects of bad laws and institutions. It is the only thing capable of serving as a check on despotic power. However, on Montesquieu's view, it is generally a mistake to base civil laws on religious principles. Religion aims at the perfection of the individual. Civil laws aim at the welfare of society. Given these different aims, what these two sets of laws should require will often differ. For this reason, religion ought not always to serve as first principle to the civil laws. The civil laws are not an appropriate tool for enforcing religious norms of conduct. God has His own laws and is quite capable of enforcing them without our assistance. When we attempt to enforce God's laws for Him or to cast ourselves as His protectors, we make our religion an instrument of fanaticism and oppression. This is a service neither to God nor to our country. If several religions have gained Adherence in a country, those religions should all be tolerated, not only by the state, but by its citizens. The law should require from the several religions not only that they shall not embroil the state, but that they shall not raise disturbances among themselves. While one can try to persuade people to change religions by offering them positive inducements to do so, attempts to force others to convert, are ineffective and inhumane. In an unusually scathing passage, Montesquieu also argues that they are unworthy of Christianity and writes, If anyone in times to come shall dare to assert that in the age in which we live, the people of Europe were civilized, you will be cited to prove that they were barbarians, and the idea they will have of you will be such as will dishonor your age and spread hatred over all your contemporaries. In this episode, we learned the contribution of Montesquieu to the body of political philosophy. In summary, he cited that it is important to have separation of powers so that tyranny will be prevented. Where there is no separation of powers, there will be the absence of liberty. He saw this separation of powers when he visited in the United Kingdom during his tour in Europe. He said, even though the branches of government in England are separated, they are interdependent and collaborative with each other. This has been your podcast lecture series in ps two, Introduction to Political Theory. Thank you and be well.